Hey y'all, thanks for listening. I uh, want to give you a heads up about what's going to happen for the first 29 minutes. I'm doing a rant. And then after that, I've got this uh, teaching that I did on parenting that uh, I thought might be newsworthy to y'all. So check it out. Hello friends, welcome back to the show. Today's another day that we have got some important stuff to get into. Today, I want to talk about something that gets talked about a lot, but I honestly don't really get it. The subject matter is toxic masculinity. It seems that you've got two conversations that are happening concurrently in our country and in our world, but they don't seem to really be listening to each other. It seems on one side you have a lot of people talking about the problem of toxic masculinity as though that is the epicenter of every problem that we've got going. And then we've got another side talking about how masculinity is under attack. And I don't know if or where I've ever experienced those things occurring. I've never really felt like toxic masculinity was a substantial problem. And I've never really felt I've never really felt like masculinity was also under attack in a real and substantial way. In some ways, it seems like this is a great thing to get mad about and discuss online, but in practicality, I don't see where that's fleshed out in some substantial ways. You know, obviously, we've had uh, John Eldridge on the podcast, and, you know, I'm. if if the guy wouldn't have hung up on me, I could have gotten into this conversation with him. Uh, I say that in jest. I've talked about it a few times. You know, nothing but love for John Eldridge, and I think... Uh, go listen to that podcast if you want the rest of the story on that. But, you know, one of the critiques of Eldridge's work is that when John Eldridge, in his wildly popular book, Wild at Heart, talked about how every man needs a battle, needs, you know, a beauty to rescue. And on the one hand, there's a lot of people that connect that because the idea of like, we we want adventure, we want to go do something, we want to go take over the world. Uh, Some of the critique is that in some... Uh, some of the things that are highlighted and emphasized in that, uh, maybe not even the book, but that sort of like that movement is that what we're elevating are not things as Christians that we should look to because what we're looking at is Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1, and we're upholding Genesis 3 as an ideal when Genesis 1 is the ideal. Now, Genesis 3 is life after the quote-unquote fall, where the consequences of Adam and Eve making the decision to ignore God's statement about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil cause certain things to happen. Uh, for, the, for the woman, it's uh, greater pains in childbirth and you shall desire a man who shall like, rule over you. Consequence of the fall, relationship is different. And for Adam, like the, the toils of your hand, work will be harder. It's not that work is not going to be in place, but work that you already were doing now, it's going to be harder. And there's these battles that you're having is kind of where some of that comes from. And like I, I see that there is a critique that sometimes we elevate boyhood and we take boyhood on steroids and say that's what masculinity is. Sometimes we take like these childish things that most of us love as kids if you're uh, a boy and we say that's what masculinity is. And sometimes you have like these men's conferences that are really popular in the evangelical world where it's a lot of stuff that sometimes people go, well, wait a minute, are you guys doing a boys' conference or a, a men's conference? Because it seems that true masculinity is like found in the identity of Jesus, and some of the things that we're looking for looks more like the stuff that boys really like, instead of talking about like a deep, substantial spiritual encounter that leads to wisdom and maturity and a humility and strength that coincide together. So it seems like they're like a lot of these conversations are like going past each other. And I think if I was to sum up what I think is the actual issue with masculinity right now, it's not it's not some people are too fascinated with, you know, playing with their trucks and, you know, being in the woods and hunting or that there's another group of people that says, you know, y'all just need to read poetry and uh, you know, l- learn how to you know, bake or do pottery or something like that. 
which by the way, I do like, uh, I'm getting into grilling as you guys all know that my, my love for cooking a good steak has, has grown and leaps and bounds in the last two years, but that's another subject for another time. Um, but <clears throat> I think the issue with masculinity is less about, you know, people are reading the wrong books or they're doing the wrong things. And I think the core issue that is plaguing the way that many men experience life today, uh, I, I think it was Thoreau who years ago said that many men live in quiet desperation. I, I think the quiet desperation that many men experience now is isolation. And at the root cause of much of the malady with masculinity is there are a bunch of people that are completely isolated. And there's nothing good that grows in isolation. Isolation and solitude might look the same on the surface, but they are drastically different. And that's, I think, what's missing for most people. And I think people who are finding the antidote to isolation are the ones who are really thriving. No matter if, you know, you have more traditional interest or interest that doesn't seem to fit in a category, I think those are less important. The, the real importance is, is connection. Now, let me, let me tell you a story. Do you guys like stories? I think you should if you're listening to the podcast. But uh, <laughs> this, uh, this past July, I uh, participated in another uh, jiu-jitsu competition here in Austin. Uh, there was a, a big international Brazilian jiu-jitsu competition in Austin. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people participate. I would assume probably thousands of people were there uh, for the competitions, this big athletic complex. And so I did one last summer and the, uh, the gym that I'm a part of, like they, they highly encourage people to participate in competitions. And there's a lot of guys uh, and gals who participate in like really big competitions. And so this was a local one and I decided to go to this one and I've done one before I wrestled in high school and yet like these are very nerve wracking events just the, I didn't have to do a weight cut this time. I didn't have uh, great training going into it. I was on vacation uh, until maybe a week and a half before I get back and I have this weird like upper respiratory thing, which I think we can all guess what that might've been that uh, like, I just couldn't train because my lungs weren't working right. And so it didn't feel like physically great going into this competition. And if you've never been to a jujitsu competition, the way it works is you have uh, groups based on age, experience, and weight, and then you uh, th- there's 12 mats going on at the same time. There are competitions on each one. In the jiu-jitsu community, they call them fights, but I'm a follower of Jesus, so I don't want to say I had a fight because that just seems weird for a pastor to say. Like, hey, what do you do? Oh, I had a fight on Saturday. That's just, you know, whatever. Uh, so I had this competition, and so y- you get there, and there are you know, a lot of athletes, and, and you find out when it's your time to go, they your name pops up on a screen and so you have to go way in and then you're kind of like in this this waiting area, uh, like this bullpen area and there's a bunch of different athletes there and then you eventually kind of figure out probably who the person you're going to compete with and I only had one match so it was only against uh, one person this time and so I'm in this bullpen area and I had a couple guys from my gym who are also getting ready to compete and so I'm staying there with them and then I start to figure out who this guy is that I'm going against and eventually like they, they, they kind of call for us and so we walk to the front and then we have to walk across uh, there's 12 mats, and, and we're mat number two or something like that. And so we have to walk all the way down. We stand there for five minutes, let the previous match finish. And then, like, you just get on the mat, and then it's just like y- you compete. And five minutes, and finish the competition. Uh, it doesn't matter who won. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter for me to say who won or who lost. Um, but since you guys are already asking, if, yeah, I won. Um, just in, it, Again, it didn't matter for the story, but if you wanted to know, yeah, it was me who won. And here's the weirdest thing that happened. Um, after the match, uh, roll over, shake the guy's hand and, you know, Hey, good job. Well, thank you. It was an honor to roll with you. Thank you. It was, it was, uh, it, it was a gift. Thanks for doing this, blah, blah, blah. All that happens. And then you have to walk back to the bullpen area. And so we start talking, me and this guy that never met before for five minutes, we're, we're competing on the mat against each other, trying to choke each other. Uh, I had a really good choke, but I, it's just a little bit too loose. I couldn't finish him. It's a shame. But uh, then we start talking, and we start having this conversation, and we're talking for five, ten minutes. We're back in the bullpen area. We don't leave, and we're still talking. And eventually, I, I see one of my uh, buddies from church, Joel. Shout out to Joel Ornelas, who was there supporting the team. And uh, he, he also trains at the same gym that uh, I train at. And uh, I was like, hey, Joel, take a picture uh, of us. And so I put my arm around this guy. We get a picture together. And then the guy I competed with says, hey, send that picture to me. 
I said, all right, give me your number. And so he t- puts in my phone and I text him the number. And we end up talking for probably another 20 minutes uh, while we have to kind of wait for some of the, the, the detail stuff happen. Uh, and by that, I mean me getting my gold medal. Um, but we're talking for 20 more minutes. And to the point where my wife's like, hey, uh, her and the girls just left because it was like I was talking too long and she had some stuff to do. And uh, so finished competition. Uh, I say support some friends and then I leave. Well, two days later, it's Monday morning, I'm in uh, uh, Los Angeles that morning, and I get a text, and it's from the guy I competed with, and he says, hey, you know, it, it was great competing with you, I was on a roll with you, uh, did a great job, and then he goes on this soliloquy about how he has never felt a connection like he experienced in jiu-jitsu like he has anywhere else. And it's a different gym, so I don't know what that gym culture is like. But then we kind of start texting back and forth all morning. And it's like we're friends after we competed against each other. And it's like really beautiful way of um, like competition creates respect and respect creates relationship. And one of the things that he talked about, though, is there's never been a sense of community like he's found in jiu-jitsu. And I think the point here is that when you have an ability for people to have this common goal that you struggle to get to together, you naturally create connections. And I think the issue with isolation is a lack of common goal that you're working towards that's not an easy goal, that's not an easy adventure to get to, it's not an easy task to complete, but there is a common goal that you're working towards and that that creates connection. And I think that's the issue. Uh, the comedian uh, John Mulaney had a bit a couple years ago where he talked about um, how your father doesn't have friends. Your, your father doesn't have friends. Your mom has friends and those friends have husbands. And that's who your dad hangs out with. But your father doesn't have friends. And then he goes on to say, uh, in the same sort of bit, that the greatest miracle that Jesus performed was getting new friends in his 30s. Which to, it's a very great indictment on modern masculinity, where it's a real struggle for most men to develop relationships. And when you don't have relationships, some terrible things grow in those absences. One of the things, if, if you follow John Mulaney's career, is after that special came out, uh, actually, I think that was an uh, opening monologue for Saturday Night Live, uh, where that comes from. But um, after that happened... A few years later, Mulaney ends up going into rehab for um, a drug addiction. And one of the things, and, and I, don't, I don't know what's going on behind the surface. This is definitely armchair psychology here. But one of the things that research has been showing us over the last couple of years, this has actually probably been for the past decade, some of this research has been out, is that one of the big telltale signs for addiction to grow is isolation. A lack of community leads to more addictions. And so one of the things that we're seeing is, I think one of the big issues with masculinity is a sense of isolation. And isolation happens when there isn't this shared goal that you're working towards. And so uh, sports and martial arts, yeah, that's a great way to do it. But there's a bunch of different ways that you can find that sort of common goal that you're working towards. I think the 12-step program is a great way for many people to find community because you have this massive, like, problem that you're trying to solve. You have this battle that you're in, that you have this goal that you're trying to get to, and you can't get there alone. And so you have these deep bonds that form because people are working to work through this big obstacle, this big adversary in their life, but they don't do it on their own. And so these tight, intimate relationships are formed there. One of the things that I've talked about a lot on the podcast is deconstruction. If you follow the journey of the podcast, you know, a lot of my own journey was it began in reconstruction and I never set out like to do what I'm, what I did uh, with this podcast, but in a lot of ways, this was my medium that I could work through and, and go through my deconstruction. So luckily for me, it didn't stay deconstruction. I think one of the, the serendipities of the podcast is that in getting connected to a lot of these voices that I knew from afar that were helping me through their work, work through some of my issues, I also found community. I also found people who were on the same journey as me. I also found relationships with people who could help me because I think one of the central things that helps us work through any sort of theological crisis 
any sort of ideological reframing of our experience of life is to have other people go with us. And so if you are going through you know, deconstruction, uh, I pray to God that you, you get to reconstruction sooner rather than later, is that for reconstruction to really happen is that you have to reconstitute a community around you of people who are going in the same direction. Whether you're a man or a woman, it doesn't, it doesn't matter your, your gender. What, what matters is that we all need that kind of connection. And I think the problem with masculinity right now is that it's harder for a lot of guys to talk to each other, to, to share these things, to, to have this sort of honesty. Uh, Mulaney has another thing in that, that same stand-up uh, act where he talks about how, uh, you know, he, I think he's at a bar or something. Forgive me for, I haven't seen this thing in a couple of years, but I think he tells a story of, he's sitting at a, at a bar and he's talking to this guy and this guy talks about how he wants to leave his wife and start all over and, and you know, give up his, his relationship and, and start something new and, and cheat on his wife and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on and on. And then uh, the joke is he asks him, well, how much money do you make? And he's, oh man, that's way too personal. And he goes, you just told me you want to leave your family, but you can't tell me how much money you make? That, that we have like these certain things that we can talk about, but we, we can't really talk about other things. Those things are kind of off limits. And so we kind of have these surface connections, but ultimately what we need are real connections. And if you want to have a healthy masculinity, what you have to find are people who you're willing to be committed to. And sometimes you have to have these sort of artificial reasons to be congregated. It's kind of like... Um, how in the ocean they will sink old ships just so that the marine life can create this ecosystem that becomes like fun- functionally like a uh, a new coral reef you'll also see them dropping like these big concrete structures in the middle of the ocean so that it creates this artificial community that becomes a real place for a marine life to have this healthy flourishing ecosystem but you, you have to have something to build it around 12-step program, that's a great example. Uh, sports are a great example. My, my brother-in-law, uh, Blaine, who couldn't ask for a better brother-in-law than my brother-in-law. Now, I would never tell him that to his face, so don't, don't tell him I said that. Uh, but one of the things that I think is so, this is weird to say, healthy about my accountant brother-in-law is that he's got this group of friends that he's been tight with ever since college. And every year they get together uh, for, for what I like to call their, their golf ball competition, and what it is is they have this group of, I don't know, it's like a dozen guys or so, maybe maybe even more than that, but it's like his core group of friends and then kind of like this, this, this other kind of secondary group of friends. And every year they get together for this weekend of golf and they have teams and they do this dinner and they have like this ridiculous uh, like wardrobe stuff and this really cheesy like photo shoot and all that. And all that stuff is in, in a lot of ways like artificial, like who really cares who wins between a bunch of like 35-year-old accountants in a, in, in a golf match? Like it's completely stupid. I'm not saying golf is stupid uh, with that, but I will say that in another place if you want me to. But what I love about it is that you've got a group of friends that have this, in, in some ways, like this artificial ecosystem that forces them to, to stay connected and stay together. And if I want my daughters to have a healthy uncle in their life, like my brother-in-law Blaine, one of the things that I know is essential is that he has to have male relationships where he can have serious conversations with, where he can talk about struggles, where he can be honest about what's going on. And it doesn't mean they do that day in and day out and that every conversation has to be at like this sort of like core, like, hey, I'm talking to my therapist type, honest conversation. But you have to have the people that you spend time with, that you have this shared experience with so that you can survive. The Army used to have this slogan that says, uh, you know, come to us and, and we'll make you, and here's the line, an army of one. But in life, an army of one quickly becomes an army of none because none of us can do this on our own. And whether it's toxic masculinity or femininity, being alone is not a recipe for success. And one of the things that like, I hear over and over again is that people used to have that level of community, but as they age, it's hard for them to maintain that. I once sat with a friend who's a combat veteran and uh, just sitting around with a couple guys and he's talking about life in in the military and he he saw some uh really crazy stuff and if anyone wants to romanticize what war is like uh, i i just don't think they've ever listened to someone who's actually been in war it's it, it it's really unnerving the way that uh war puts you in just an atrocious situation and 
uh, it, that's the world we live in in some ways until the kingdom comes and it is on earth as it is in heaven and swords are broken into plowshares or remolded into plowshares. This is a kind of a reality um, that that is life right now. But he's describing it and then he, like this this light kind of comes on in his eyes and then he kind of just like turns to everyone with this like childlike enthusiasm. Says, all right, guys, let's all go re-enlist. <laughs> and I was like, I've never been enlisted in the first place. I don't know how I'm going to re-enlist. But I, I think what he was romanticizing was having a level of intimacy and connection with the guys that he served with. And what he wanted to go back to was was that. I mean, that's why you hear athletes always talk about the thing that they miss the most is the locker room. Like, they 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 miss that. And so uh, one of the things that we got to think about is, like, where are we creating communities? And sometimes they might feel artificial, like a fake coral reef that's, uh, created in the ocean, but it, it doesn't matter to, to some degree. Like, what is the the rationale for the groups forming? There has to be something that's created, and this is, I think, one of the problems with church and why g- guys sometimes struggle to connect in churches. For a lot of guys, the idea of like sitting in a circle and just talking or sharing feelings or singing, like that, doesn't create an environment where they probably can can flourish and be honest. In some ways. Uh, and this is kind of an overgeneralization for some guys, and obviously it's just as true for, for some ladies, um, but there are just some people, maybe that's better said, there are some people that they do better talking out of the side of their mouth than straight from the middle of their mouth. And what by, I mean by that metaphor is, it's easier for me to talk to you while we're working on something in front of us. And I can talk to you in those moments, or maybe after we've worked on this and built connection, but we have to have that. And I'll be honest, like in my uh, jujitsu gym, it's been a, a beautiful place for me to create um, really meaningful relationships that, that look and flourish differently. And one of the craziest things is, I think since my last book came out, the percentage of people at my gym who've read the book, talked about the book, supported, and these are not like all like church people. And obviously my last book, uh, both of my books are very like religious centric. I mean, obviously talking about faith and spirituality, uh, but the people who like engage in the book, like it, probably higher than any community that I'm in elsewhere to be very blunt and honest with you to the point where uh, a week or two ago, uh, no, it was last week. I walk into the gym and uh, there are a couple new guys who I haven't seen before. And so I go over and I introduce myself and I say, hey, hey, nice to meet you. My name's Luke. And a guy goes, uh, hey, are you are you preacher Luke? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he goes, hey, so-and-so told me uh, about your book and said you wrote a really great book. And he goes, I'm, I'm reading Jordan Peterson right now, um, but when I'm finished, I, you know, I, I, I want to check out your book. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. I, 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 really, I really appreciate it. But it's like a group of people that like there's connections and so they support and talk about each other. And uh, you can't have a um, you know conversation about masculinity without talking about Jordan Peterson. It seems like, and so anyway. Okay, here's okay. Here's my Jordan Peterson rant. Uh, Jordan Peterson is. Let me source this. Um, a friend of mine, Carl from church, sent me uh, an email and said, "Hey, you got to read what Richard Beck wrote on his blog." And Beck had done some stuff about uh, Jordan Peterson. And obviously, if you don't know Richard Beck, he's. Uh, dear friend and someone I look up to immensely. And so he does this stuff about Jordan Peterson where he talks about one of the reasons that Jordan Peterson is so, um, he's connecting to so many people. I don't want to say successful. I feel like that's not the word I'm looking for. But the reason his work has the, the receptivity with so many people is because he's giving tips when other people aren't. And, you know, for all Jordan Peterson's flaws, um, I think the way he just comes across is so confrontational and bellicose in the way that he has just been kind of like a, he's kind of a jerk to people who disagree with him. And I think that's part of the reason his, his quote unquote brand and and platform are the level that they are because he's kind of uh, seized on the zeitgeist of the moment in which everything is confrontational and and partisan and polarized. And that he's kind of stepped in and like, Hey, I'm going to criticize this group of people. And so all of a sudden another group of people says, Oh yeah, this, this guy's our guy to the point where Jordan Peterson, who says he's not a Christian says, uh, in a video recently that that uh, I saw a few people share that like this is what Christians should be doing. And I'm going, wait a minute. I think Christians should learn, like all people should respect and listen and learn from each other. Obviously, I listen to the podcast. I've talked to any and everyone basically on here that I can. I would love to have Peterson on the podcast. Definitely love to talk to him. But if you're taking 
your notes on what Christians should be doing from someone who's not a Christian, it seems that maybe you're you're kind of missing something, you know? Um, so for all of Peterson's flaws, um, he at least is giving practical tips, and sometimes we miss that. And I do think that's something the church can learn from Peterson is, here's a guy who's giving tips. And so I think the church needs to be a place where we can give some practical applications of this is what we need to be doing. And so if we're talking about masculinity, one of the things I think we need to be doing is like we need to be finding ways for people to connect to each other. And we need to understand that the real problem for masculinity, as it is probably for femininity, is isolation, where people are not being able to have these sort of connections that they need. And if there's anything that we've learned about addiction, they grow in isolation. If there's anything we know about despair and depression, it grows in isolation. If there's anything we know about cynicism, it grows in isolation. If there's anything we know about unhealthy deconstruction is that it grows in isolation. And so if there's any real thing that we need to be addressing front and center, it's that. And so... um yeah, that's my rant on masculinity. You need to find ways to be connected to people. And I think for many of us, you need to have this shared goal that you're working towards. And if there's anything I've learned from my experience for the last two and a half years in jiu-jitsu is that you have a group that's comfortable with shared suffering. And the byproduct of that is a type of relationship and respect and community that some of us don't have anywhere else. So... um I, you know, I don't have a solution on where you're going to go find that, and I don't have a solution for for how uh, you women and men can can go do that easily. But I, I think that's the recipe for success for any and everyone is that you you got to do that. And so, you know, maybe create this ridiculous golf competition like my accountant brother-in-law does, or maybe you you get a group of people together that you know are going through deconstruction. And say, hey, we're we're gonna figure this out together, and we're gonna work towards it. Or you see a problem in your community, like, hey. Um, uh, let me talk about my church. There's a, uh, I mean, there's a, a problem with people who are homeless, and there's a lot of really cold nights in Austin. Not a ton. This is definitely Texas still, but there there are some problems. And so you had a group of people that say, "Hey, we're going to rally together and create a cold weather shelter for some of our uh, housing displaced people, and we're going to create this project and we're going to do it together." And one of the things that's happened between our church and the Episcopalians across the street is that we we have these shared problems that we're working to solve. And so there's a group of people that meet and serve in the food pantry, in the cold weather shelter, and all of a sudden this beautiful harmony has has connected these two groups together. And so obviously Episcopalians and Church of Christ people, we have our differences of opinions on issues that we, we really care about and that are important to us. Um, not the least of which is, you know, Churches of Christ, we, we really value adult baptism and Episcopalians do do infant baptism or pedo baptism. And it's like, no one's talking about that. Like no one's getting caught, uh, caught up in our differences of opinion on how to do something when you have a bigger project that you're actually trying to do together. And sometimes we turn and become bellicose and argumentative and divisive because like I, idle hands and, you know, idle feet, uh, typically turn into argumentative feet and argumentative hands. And they they all of a sudden try to create something out of nothing. And if it's not positive, often it can become negative. So uh, find a project, create a community. And I think that's ultimately where our issues with uh, modern masculinity and femininity can, can be solved is when we do that together. So uh, that's a rant. Thanks for listening. Appreciate y'all. Now, I... I started a series uh, like forever ago, a couple months ago, and I initially had like seven or eight sermons to do, but then all of a sudden things got complicated, the life of the church got full, and I had one sermon specifically on parenting that I was going to preach, but I didn't have time before I took uh, my study break in July, but I had one less sermon, and I I definitely wanted to finish it. So I'm going to do one last sermon from this series, and then we'll start a new series on finding joy next week. But actually, I almost thought I didn't need to preach the sermon on parenting after I went to VIP camp a few weeks ago. VIP camp where many of our kids were at. I was out there for the talent show. And one of the kids told a joke that made me think, I think our parents are doing a great job. They don't need any sermons on parenting. When the kids said the following joke, and I quote, two fish were in a tank. One said to the other, how do you drive this thing? 
Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's my level of humor right there. So VIP camp, that's my, that's my people. But nevertheless, we're going to do that, this sermon on parenting. But before I really jump into that, I, I want to acknowledge that sometimes in church, we overly prioritize the place of nuclear families. Parents and their kids, in some ways, especially in the American church, get elevated as like the most important people in church. And church isn't a resource to help you be a better parent. Church isn't a resource to help you to have a better family. Church is supposed to become your family. The reason Christians for thousands of years have referred to each other as brother and sister is because we become new family. In our baptism, we are born again and we're born into a new family. And sometimes we make people who don't have kids feel like they're somehow second-class citizens. And I'm really sorry for the way that the church has done that. And this morning, I, I hope you don't hear some of that that maybe you've heard over the years. We're not trying to highlight or emphasize one group of people as being of most importance, just one of the many ways people are part of the church. And some of us are here as parents. And so if, if you don't mind, give me one week to talk about parenting specifically, even if this doesn't connect to you personally. I hope there's still a word in here for you. Well, as the story goes, the first set of siblings were actually Adam and Eve, the first people that God created, Adam and Eve, were, were, were there. And as the story goes, God tells Adam and Eve, hey, there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil which you can't eat from, to which they say, where'd you say that was? God says, I'm not going to tell you. And they go, well, what's it like? And God says, I'm not going to tell you. And they go, what does it smell like? And God says, I'm not going to tell you. Eventually, God is steps away, and while God's gone, God comes back and finds a surprise that Adam and Eve have broken into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're eating it. And God said, what did you guys do? And Adam said, it was her fault. And she said, no, it was his fault. He said, no, it was her fault. And God decided to give the first people the only punishment that was fitting for the crime that they committed, and that was making them parents also. <laughs> they had to experience it as well. Because being a parent is a complicated thing. There's layers to it. It's challenging. But it's, it's actually very simple, though. I mean, the essence of being a Christian parent is that you are to your kids what your heavenly parent is to you. It's pretty straightforward. Just be like God is in your home to your kids. It's straightforward, but it's not easy to do. It's not easy for any of us. But that doesn't diminish how important or meaningful it is. And whether you're connected to the story of Christianity or not, you sense that there is a great deal of weight to it. Uh, let me introduce you to two people. Uh, on the screen, we have two people. This gentleman on the left uh, is a gentleman named Jack Harlow. He is a hip-hop artist. And the person on the right is a gentleman named Kurt Alexander. He goes by the stage name of Big Boy. I know a lot of you are big hip-hop fans in this room this morning, so I don't need to tell you who these people are. But... Jack Harlow came to promote a new album on this gentleman's radio show. And the following conversation took place that I want you to pay attention to. So would you watch this, please? Be a legend. There's a lot of things that you got to carry to be beautiful. legendary. And I'm going to tell you, man, you are on your way. Thank you. To being a legend. I appreciate that, yeah. especially from a Radio Hall of Famer, man. You knew wow. that too, huh? Oh, man, this is the <laughs> Can we not make this about me, man? You know what I'm saying? Here we are celebrating your uh, album, celebrating your success, man. And, and you just give back to the community, yeah, man. man. Thank you so much, You're man. You're the greatest, man. You're the greatest. I, hey, You're man. So funny, bro. Dude, let me tell you, homie. Like, if I didn't have these, like, little black marks on my face, I'm blushing right now. I'm, 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 I'm Black man. marks. Yeah, I'm blushing, man. So yeah, thank man. you, bro. I appreciate it's not that. Just, it's not just the career stuff, though, bro. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone talks about what a great father you are, too, man. <laughs> That's just what I hear. Take your time, babe. Take your time. Thank you, bro. Yeah. I grew up without my dad, man. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. You're amazing. No doubt. You better keep all this. 
So talk to me about your relationship with Drake. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how does this relationship with, with Drake come together, man? Sometimes the silence speaks louder than any words could be. In that silence, you heard the importance, the significance of being a father it was to that gentleman. Being a parent isn't, isn't easy. It's hard, but it's, it's meaningful. Our text today, we're going to start in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. For the background, uh, the story begins, Genesis, Adam and Eve, they, they begin in, in a lot of ways what historians call the, the prehistory, but eventually you get to Genesis 11 and God picks one man, his name is Abram, Abraham, Sarah. And God says, I'm going to bless the nation, the world, through your family, even though this couple is quite old in years, but they have no kids. But God is faithful to God's word as God always is. They have a family and it begins to grow and eventually they end up in Egypt, initially for a good thing, but things turn and they become slaves in Egypt. And God sets them free out of Egyptian slavery by a man named Moses' leadership. They leave after the 10 plagues and then they walk through the Red Sea on dry land and eventually they get to the wilderness where God leads them and eventually it's time for them to cross the river and to go in the promised land. And Moses is replaced by a guy whose name means deliverer. It's the name Joshua. In Hebrew, it means deliverer. And so Joshua delivers them. And at Joshua's, in a lot of ways, his, his very end of leadership, he makes this statement to the Jewish people. He reminds them of where they came from. He reminds them of the backstory. He reminds them of all that God has done. And then he makes this statement to them in Joshua 24. And so if, if you're physically able, would you please, out of respect for God's word, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Starting verse 14. Now therefore revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now if you're unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are willing. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Joshua makes this statement, choose this day whom you will serve. Now, I don't think any of us are a part of a nation that functions like Israel does, as being God's initial blessing for the rest of the world. We're not that. Many of us have never seen a miracle like walking through the Red Sea on dry land like they did. But what we do have in common is this same decision. Choose this day whom you and your household will serve. Every one of us has to make a decision for the kind of people our people are going to be. We have to make the decision on what are the things that are going to fall through the cracks and what are the things that are going to be most important for our family. We have to choose. And what Joshua is doing here, he, he's not kind of making this up. This isn't new. This isn't new information for God's people, but he's echoing back to what Moses had said. Joshua's predecessor, Moses, had said words that Joshua is echoing here in Joshua 24. These are the words that we read every year, every Sunday, we do our baby dedication at the beginning of the year. It's what's called the Shema, which is the Hebrew for here. It's the first word. Uh, these are those words from the book of Deuteronomy that Joshua is referencing here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. These are the words that every good Jew is going to know. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And when Joshua is saying, choose this day whom you will serve, are you going to be people who do this? Are you going to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? And soul and strength. Years later, as a good rabbi would, Jesus expounds this when he says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He adds mind to that. And then he says, You must love 
your neighbor as yourself. All of this is the kind of love that you have to decide if you're going to choose for your house to have. You're going to choose it. What kind of people are you going to be? What are the things that are going to fall through the crack and what are the things that are never going to be mistaken? What's it for you? Now, do you know the secret to find out how someone, do you know the secret on how to find out if someone is a vegan or a crossfitter? Do you know what you have to do to find out if someone's a vegan or a crossfitter? The answer is you do nothing. They will always tell you. They're always going to tell you. They believe so much that no matter what you're talking about, somehow this will come up in conversation. I, I told that joke a few weeks ago in Nashville, and I added one more important thing that's far more important than being a vegan or a crossfitter, and that is being a Texan. And everyone in te- Tennessee laughed about that, and I was like, yeah, you're just jealous, though. <laughs> because you believe so much in it, it just comes up in your conversation. It's never going to fall through the crack. A gentleman who I knew when Lindsay and I were living in Florida told me something when his kids were the age of my kids aren't now. This is 15, 20 years ago. And he said, Luke, kids are little recorders. They're watching everything. They're listening to everything. The only one problem is they're little recorders that don't have an off switch. They're watching everything. They're listening for everything. The only problem is they don't have an off switch. And you merge those two things together If you're going to talk about something, it's because you care about it. If you're going to always focus on it, it's because it's meaningful to you. And your kids are always listening. And in some ways, this is what Deuteronomy is getting at. If we go back to verse 7. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. I, I don't think this is a commandment to create some sort of obsessive religious compulsion, where you sit down and all of a sudden you have to quote your favorite Max Lucado line. You, you get up and you have to sing your favorite Hillsong song. You, you lie down and therefore you have to open your favorite Bible translation. I don't think it's some sort of obsessive thing. In the same way that in 1 Thessalonians 5, Scripture will tell us to pray without ceasing. It's not to create obsessive religious behavior, but it's instead to live in such a way that whatever you're doing, Whether you're walking along the road or you're sitting down at home, whether you're laying down, you're getting up, these are the things that are on your lips. When you're driving your kids around town, this is what's so important to you that it's going to come up in your conversation. And when your kids are looking at what you do and looking at what you care about, they're naturally just going to see this as being important. Because faith is one of those things that it's taught, sure, but even more so, it's, it's caught. People see it. Your kids see it. They're little recorders. They're always watching. And so for some of us parents, we want our kids to desire to come to have a worship service as part of their normal routine for life. We want them to desire this as they become adults. But you can't expect your desire to come to fruition if they see you every Sunday being disinterested in what's happening. If they see you on your phone, if they see you not really engaged, if they see you at church not really expecting to hear something from above in this moment, they see it. A couple years ago, I found one of y'all's Bibles. It was left here. And I was trying to figure out whose Bible it was, and there was like... Uh, Bulletin after bulletin, this is obviously pre-COVID when we had bulletins, bulletin after bulletin, and there were just copious notes on every bulletin. Here's a Bible verse I learned today. Here's something I learned. Here's something that was meaningful to me. It's just written page after page. And eventually we found out whose Bible this was and then got it back to him. And it's no surprise that this person has a child who's been involved in leading on Sunday morning services. You have a child who sees, they're a little recorder that sees that this matters to you, so it matters to them. How how can you expect your kids to choose the way of love and service if they don't see you loving and serving others? How do they see you choosing the way of forgiveness and hospitality towards others if you aren't forgiving others and you aren't being hospitable to others? Let me tell you two conversations I've had in the last couple of years. One is a guy who's telling me, you know, I really want my kids to care about church. Just like I grew up in a home that people cared about church. 
And I said, great, great. Where do you go to church? And he said, I don't, I don't go to church. I'm like, well, that's part of the equation here. Another conversation was with the family as they were preparing for their mother's funeral. And we were talking about their mom, and they were sharing stories as we were describing the things that we wanted in the eulogy for their mom. And one of these adult children said, Mom always taught us the value of family. Not with what she said, but what she did. Kids are little recorders, and they remember those things even when they themselves become adults. Faith is not something it is taught as much as it is caught. Teaching matters. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's more by what's experienced, what they're watching, what they see. They're paying attention. So how, how are you living? Can I tell you one thing I've never had to teach my children? I've never had to teach my children what godly people do on Sunday afternoon in the fall. They just know that all good Christians root for the Dallas Cowboys. Because they watch. They've seen me. They've also seen me say, hey, you need to leave the room. This is the end of the game. Things didn't go well. We don't want you to, we don't want you to caught that. Faith is often caught. So what things aren't falling through your life? Because it's not going to fall through your kid's life because they see it. It's caught. But that's not the only way. I think in some ways I, I want to give you two things for how to make sure that you impress upon your children to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and also your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. The first thing is you have to live it out because faith is more caught than it is taught. The second thing is that I think you also need to have those pillars in your life that function like a ten post. Things that are like pillars that everything kind of flows out of. And I think this is also what Deuteronomy is mentioning. If we keep reading in verses 8 and 9, Scripture goes on to say, Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so when you're taking these principles, these ideas of loving God with your entirety, put this on your hand, put this on your head, put this in your home, put it all around you. You have these, these tent posts that you keep coming back to. So whenever you're having conversations, you have something to refer back to. That's not just your idea, it's not just something you think, but there's something that's more transcendent than you. And so in our whole household, one of the things that I value highly, that, that our family values highly, is the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm not telling you how you need to pray. You might pray the Lord's Prayer, you might not. Uh, that, that's your call. It's also your call to how you're going to respond to Jesus when you get to heaven. And he says, how come you didn't pray like I told you? That's y'all's call, not mine. Okay, I'm not going to be there for you. You're on your own. Jesus, I told him. No. Um, and so it's a normal part of our routine, usually in the evenings, to do the Lord's Prayer. And the way it functions like this 10 posts in our house, and for me and my parenting, is that I'll have conversations with my daughters. I've had one not too long ago, and one of my daughters was saying, yeah, this, this friend at school did something to me, and I, I didn't like the way that they treated me. I didn't like what they did to me. And my response was, well, well what do we pray? And she says, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. It comes back to that. It's a ten post that in some ways is metaphorically bound on our hand and our head and our house. That when we're trying to process life and we're trying to work through the experiences of life, we have certain pillars that we keep coming back to and saying, this is a core value for us. And so when we want to value what we want to happen in the world, we remember that we actually pray, not my will, but thy will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Our desire is not just for my world to happen the way I want it, but it's for God's world to happen the way God wants it. We know that God is the one who gives us provision because we pray these things. So these words of scripture are near and dear to us. It's a tent post. This is what the psalmist mentions in Psalm 119. When the psalmist writes, how can young people keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. The psalmist says, how does a young person live the right way? And the response is, these words are, are life-giving. One of the other translations of this text says, I have hidden your word in my heart so I don't sin against you. The scripture becomes this foundational thing that everything else can be filtered through. And this was my experience. When I was a teenager, for some reason, I started reading my Bible every day. 
Every day I started reading my Bible, became very obsessed. This is my routine. This is what I do every day. And I don't remember what inspired it or what made me begin it, but what I do know is my dad would every day, almost every day, go, hey, Luke, what did you read? Just ask me a question and just become a normal part of our conversation. And what happened is the word of God started to be hidden in me and my life started to change. Became a different person because of this. And, and don't be confused. The goal is not just to learn Bible trivia. The goal is not just to gain information. Because sometimes Bible trivia can simply be trivial. What we're looking for isn't information, but spiritual transformation. The goal isn't just for your kids to be able to recite to you the name of Noah's three sons. The goal is for your children to be able to filter a world that floods you with things that are not true, and for them to still know what can keep them afloat. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The goal isn't just information. The reason that we tie these things upon our hand and in our head and around our homes, literally or metaphorically, is so that we can let Scripture transform the way that we live and our kids can live. And so if you want your family to love the Lord your God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and all their strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves, first, it's got to be real to you, but second, it has to become this, this tent post that you guys can keep coming back to. It becomes like a North Star that you keep looking to. But, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be simple. To be a parent means that you carry weight, that you carry things. Not too long ago, uh, last school year, I was dropping off uh, one of my daughters at school, and uh, my daughter sneezed, and it was one of those sneezes that you need a tissue right away. And so she looks at me as, after she realizes what she needs, and she looks at me, and uh, I lost all those napkins that I keep in my truck, like because of COVID, I guess. Um, I don't know why COVID got rid of them, but they did. I had no napkins in my truck, and she's looking at me needing something. And so the only thing I can find in my glove box is actually a pair of gloves. And so I'm like, all right. And so I hand my daughter this glove, and she cleans up, and then she has this dirty, snotty glove, and she looks at me and goes, here you go, Dad. Thank you. Have a nice day at school. I love you. You carry things. Not too long after that, it was a Sunday night, I'm at home, and one of my other daughters walks out of her room, and she's holding a bowl. At night. It's never good when someone's holding a bowl late at night. They're not baking you a cake. They're not. And so she walks out holding a bowl, and I'm on the phone talking to a friend, and as she's walking out with the bowl, she looks at me, makes eye contact like this, and then just projectile vomits into the bowl. Now, I appreciate being in the bowl. That's very appreciated. But what happens next, I didn't appreciate. She finishes, and she looks at me, and then goes, I don't want that. I don't want snotty gloves. I don't want vomit full bowl. I don't want that. But being a parent means that you carry these things. That you carry things. Remember a few months ago when we had one of our beloved parents, Kevin Trailer, up here talking about the weight that he felt while his son was going through an addiction and the weight that he had to carry when he had to tell his own son the best parenting advice that he needed, which was you can't do certain things. You can't be in our home if you're using like this. It was the best thing for his kid. It was the right advice. It was the right parenting move. But in the moment, it didn't feel good. As a parent, you have to carry that weight. You have to carry the weight of not being your kid's friends. Your kids can have a lot of friends. But they can only have you as a parent. And so when you had that grace of becoming a parent, when you adopted your child or when your child was born... You were given this responsibility to carry this weight. And there was a temptation that everyone faces to dump some of our weight under our kids and to use our kids as props to make us feel good about ourselves, to live vicariously through their successes or their achievements. And that's not what we need to do as parents. You have a weight to carry to be that person who points them to what matters, to what can't fall through the cracks. And that's overwhelming. And some of us feel that because what we're carrying right now is regret that our things haven't gone the way we wanted, that our kids have made choices that we don't, we don't like. And it makes us feel like, well, maybe I'm not carrying it well, or maybe I'm a failure, or maybe I'm not 
enough. And if that's you, I, I have a word for you I want to share. It's not actually from me. Uh, my, my wife's cousin shared this video with me a month or two ago. And it's from Westover. The year was 1995, and it was a baptism for one of our students, <clears throat> a girl at the time who was a high school kid. Her name was Erica, and uh, this is a video of Erica being baptized by her dad, Greg Watts. up to be perfect, but you need to strive to be perfect. Uh, those were words were spoken by Greg Watts. If you're not a longtime member of this church, Greg Watts um, was an elder here, and at the age of 59, um, three years ago, his life ended in suicide. And uh, I wanted to show that clip, and, and I know Tony, uh, Greg's widow, is happy we're showing this clip for many reasons. One, it's a reminder uh, that in this world there is a stigma that men can't talk. And we as a church are not going to be a church that believes that. Uh, that we're a church that believes that mental health can affect any and everyone. No matter, even if you are an elder at a church, it can affect you. And so we want to remind you that we are a place that people can talk. So I want to show that video for that reason. Uh, but also because it's a reminder that any one of us can forget. Three years ago at Greg's funeral, I said that at the end, Greg's believed a lie, but that doesn't discredit the fact that the entirety of his life is built upon the truth, and that there are moments when each and every one of us believes lies. Lies that say, you're not good enough, you're not doing a good enough job. In some ways, we feel like we need to be perfect. But you don't have to be perfect because your heavenly parent is perfect. You don't have to be a perfect parent because we believe that the creator of all things loves your kids even more than you ever could. And so your love doesn't have to be perfect because your heavenly parent's love is perfect enough. And so if you are weighted down with shame this morning, may you remember that God's love is enough for you and your family. I know some of us parents feel insufficient. Well, how can I tell my kids about the story of Jesus? Or how can we talk about the Bible when I don't really know the Bible well enough to talk about it? And it's never been about information. If it was about information, y'all need to be biblical scholars. I need to be a biblical scholar. But it's not about information. It's about transformation. And I'll tell you that most biblical scholars that I've been around know it well enough to say it's really ultimately about teaching people to love. And you don't need a PhD to teach people how to love. Amen? And the reason that we love is not because we're perfect, but because God's love is perfect enough for us. And so I've got a couple hopes for you this morning. One, my hope is if you're part of this church and you're not a parent, my hope for you is that you would see that you have a vital role in serving the next generation. Whether you're, they are biologically your kids or not, you are in the family. And because you're in the family that these young people are your nieces and your nephews. And there's something real powerful about the impact of having other adults connected to children. That's how spiritual transformation happens. Be connected. Invest in this next generation. My second hope is if, you, if you're a parent, may you impress these things upon your kids. 
May you show them what matters, both with what you say, but also with how you live. And if you're a young person in the room this morning, we want you to know that you were loved by God, and we love you too. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love, which is perfect, which reminds us that we don't have to be perfect. And for those of us this morning who are reminded of the ways that we have let things slip through the cracks that we wish they wouldn't, things that matter, things that are important, I pray that shame wouldn't have the last word in our hearts, but the perfect love that you have for all of us would cover up our weaknesses and give us hope that there is a brighter future ahead, that your spirit can lead us to being the people that we need to be. God, our prayer is that we would pass on your love to others, that we would pass it on to our children and to all the world. So God, help us to be the kind of people that build our life upon you, that we build our existence upon the good news of Jesus, that we would build our life on the love that you have for us. And we pray this in the name of the Christ who has given each and every one of us hope.